you have a copy uh, of the scriptures, I invite you to turn with me in this hour to the book of Romans and chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. Romans 14 is a chapter that deals with conflict in the church, certainly at the very least potential conflict uh, in the church and how that conflict is to be resolved by selfless, self-denying love. And I'm going to pick up the reading at verse uh, 14 and I'll read through to the end of the chapter. We're not going to uh, finish the chapter today. And remember here that the issues are related to the uh, dietary laws and their application for uh, new covenant believers and in a church made up of Jews and Gentiles with different convictions uh, concerning what they should do. And uh, because of those different convictions, there was the possibility uh, of division. And Paul says, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean uh, of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. But if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God. Um, Sorry, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man uh, who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it in yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith, for whatever is not from faith is sin. Well, let's pray once again and ask God's help as we look into his word. Our Father in heaven, thank you for these moments now that we spend in your word of truth, and we pray that you would give strength both in the giving and power in the receiving and Father, as well, power by the Spirit and the living out of the things that are herein revealed. Our Father, we pray that we would be found those who, in the words of Samuel long ago, who would say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Do indeed open up wonderful things from your law. Help us, Lord, to walk in the truth with the help of the Spirit. Father, we pray that you would make uh, the love of your son and the beauty of the cross, clear and plain, uh, both in the exposition and in the celebration of the supper. And by this means, draw all to faith in Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Now, the book of 1 John, which one of our pastors has been expounding, is largely a book about assurance. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13, John gives what we might call a a purpose statement. And he says, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you might know that you have eternal life. 
You believe in the name of the Son, but I'm writing in order that you might know. Uh, I'm writing to you who profess faith, to those who are in the church. And I'm writing primarily, he seems to be saying, with two purposes. I am writing to comfort, and I'm also writing to challenge. For there are some in the church who believe in the name of the Son of God and who ought to have a strong assurance and yet don't always enjoy that strong assurance. And so they need help in ascertaining why it is that they should have that assurance. But then there are others who need perhaps to be confronted. Uh, They're bold and confident that heaven is theirs and yet there are aspects of their life that are contrary to their high and holy calling. And so John, knowing what our Lord taught when he said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven knows that we need to make, in the words of Peter, our calling and our election sure. And so in John, 1 John, John brings forth three essential tests that describe a work of true faith. Now, these are not unique to John. They're brought out in Paul and Peter and James as well. But there is, first of all, a doctrinal test. And that is that there is an embrace of the Bible's teaching concerning, in John's case, the identity of Jesus, and in Paul's case, preeminently, the truth of justification by faith. Deny these doctrinal truths and you have no assurance. Secondly, there is a moral test. John asks the question, essentially, are you walking in the light as God is in the light? James gives this challenge in his little epistle. Are you a doer of the word or only a hearer of the word? And James may well have been there when his half-brother, the Lord Jesus, preached the Sermon on the Mount and described Toward the conclusion, two kinds of hearers, one, the wise man who builds his house upon a rock, and the other, a foolish who builds their house upon the sand. And the difference was their response to the words of Jesus. One hears the words of Jesus and does them, implements them. The other hears the words of Jesus, and in the words of Jesus, he does nothing. And that is the one who builds his house upon the sand. The third test in John's writing is relational. And he reminds us here that if we claim that we are, that we know God and love God, and yet we don't love our brethren, then the truth is not in us that we are, in fact, lying. And it's interesting, John seems to indicate that it's possible to have a good and consistent Christology and perhaps even a good grasp of the nature of the gospel and even have certain marks in your life that somebody would look at and say you're quote-unquote holy. And yet he says, but do you love the brethren? And do you love them the way the Bible says to love them? Not your own definition of love, but the Bible's definition of love. Do you love them with a lowliness of mind? Do you love them with a long-suffering spirit? Do you bear with them and are patient with them in that love that is indeed patient and kind and gentle, according to 1 Corinthians 13? Now, according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, this lowliness of mind, this 
walking in love, this gentleness and bearing with one another is the supreme evidence that you have understood the gospel and that you have experienced the gospel. And if you know what the gospel is, and you understand now the ramifications of it, that if he has so loved us, we also ought to love one another, then this is going to be evident in our life. Now, we have addressed in this grand epistle, the book of Romans, the doctrinal and moral already in our studies, but now we are focusing upon this third, and that is the relational. And it's really here that by way of application that Paul camps for a very long time. And I have made the statement before, and I'll make it again, that the chief evidence of a work of grace in our hearts is how we treat other people. He has begun this section of Romans, Romans 1 through 11, the doctrinal section of Romans, Romans then 12, and following the applicatory section of Romans. He has begun that section of Romans, the applicatory section, with a vivid challenge that we all would view our lives in light of the mercies of God. I beg you, therefore, brethren, in view of the mercies of God, that you live the way that you live. Now, when did we receive these mercies of God? Well, certainly in the hour that we first believed, but also all day, every day since then, we have been the recipients of God's not just mercy, but plural mercies. He has bestowed mercies upon us. He has showered that kindness upon us day by day. And the question comes, what does a man or woman look like when they have not only been shaped by the word and shaped by doctrine and shaped by conviction, but also shaped by God's mercy and hence shaped by self-denying love? And what happens, this is the question here in this section, what happens when your convictions shaped by the word, bring you into conflict with a brother or sister who has been shaped by a different understanding of the practical application of the truth. And what happens when the issue at stake is not justification by faith, it's not the doctrine of Christology, it's not the nature and authority of the scriptures, but a matter that is ultimately indifferent. And that whether you do it or don't do it, whether you eat meat or never eat meat again, whether you drink wine or decide never to drink wine, it's ultimately a matter of indifference. Meat eaters and vegetarians go to heaven. Uh, teetotalers and those who partake of wine without drunkenness can go to heaven. But what happens when there is a conflict about how I am to live this out as one trying to live in the presence of God? And there's another question. What if you're right and they're wrong? I mean, it's a matter of indifference, but ultimately you're right and they're wrong. You're convinced along with Paul that nothing is unclean in and of itself. Well, that's the scenario here in Romans chapter 14. 
And we have seen in our previous studies how the blending in the church of Jew and Gentile raised certain practical questions. It appears the doctrinal questions largely had been answered, the kind of thing that brought about the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. Uh, We know that Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. We know that faith in Christ is sufficient for justification. But practically speaking, in regard to what we eat and what we drink, and remember Paul had said in 1 Corinthians that whether you eat or drink, do all that you do to the glory of God, which means that we can make this a matter of prayerful thought, what we eat and what we drink. What happens in a church when Jews have certain convictions that clash with Gentile convictions and practices. In light of, on the one hand, previous revelation given in the Old Testament, the Mosaic law and dietary laws, and then the new revelation that has come about in which Jesus pronounced all foods to be clean, what does this say about how to please God and as well as honor our conscience in regard to what we eat or drink? Can I, the question was being asked, in my conscience partake of anything or must I limit myself? And if I limit myself according to my conscience, that is to me, if the thing is unclean, like I can't do this, well then how do I view my brother who, or sister who eats and drinks Otherwise, And if I am convinced that I can eat all things to the glory of God, and if none of these things are unclean in and of themselves, how shall I treat the scruples of the one who does not share my understanding of liberty? Now, Paul tells us that this disagreement can and most likely did result in a condition in which some in the church were despising others in the church, And to despise doesn't doesn't mean to hate so much as it means to kind of look down your nose at, stupid, right? Or they were judging them. That is uh, Pharisee or whatever the case might be, whatever a harsh language that might even indicate, I don't really see how this person can be a Christian. They're, They're too stupid. They don't understand whatever the case. That seems to be what either could happen and most likely had happened and was happening in the church. And so Paul's going to make a series of exhortations. Remember this one with whom you differ is your brother. Remember this one with whom you differ is the servant of another. Remember that all of us are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and you need to be more concerned about yourself and how that day of judgment is going to go for you than that your brother has all his T's crossed and I's dotted. But then you must also take into consideration what your words and actions can produce and the pressure that you can put upon another, especially to make your brother or sister go against their conscience. And you may lead them into a horrifying condition of soul, a condition the apostle refers to as destroying the one for whom Christ died, and that we would do that with our food of all things. And so Paul reminds us that the essence of life in the kingdom is not the celebration of our liberty. Jesus didn't come so that we could eat or drink whatever we wanted, but rather that we would live lives of righteousness. And again, as we have seen, so much of that righteousness has to do with fulfilling the law of love. The law law is fulfilled in this, to love our neighbor 
as ourselves. To love God and to love our neighbor is the fulfillment of the law. So righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. Our good, that is our own conscience and liberty, he reminds us, must not be spoken of as evil. And it is in light of this that we come to consider this morning two additional lines of thought. And my outline is very simple. Paul now gives a conclusion and an application. Or we could say a series of conclusions and an application that we want to consider here in verses 18 and 19. And what we see by way of conclusion is that there is more at stake than just getting along with our brother and sister, more at stake than simply dying to ourselves and controlling ourselves and our appetites and our attitudes. So let's look at this conclusion. What is at stake when we do these things to the honor of Christ, uh, when we say to ourselves, all right, I'll do what the apostle encourages me to do. What's at stake? Verse 18, for he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. And I don't know that I can come up with anything more compelling to move us to action than what the Apostle Paul says here. And so consider three things from this. The first conclusion, and this is not really so much a conclusion as a preface to the conclusion, but I'm going to treat it just for the sake of breaking it down in this way. The first conclusion is that in our self-denying love, he who does these things is serving Christ. So that when we act in self-denying love, when we deny ourselves for the sake of another, so that there will not be offended, not be destroyed, and whatever language that, that is dealt with in context, we are doing this with a preeminent eye to our service to Christ. That's the first conclusion. The second conclusion is that in our self-denying love, we are doing something acceptable to God. And then thirdly, in our self-denying love, we are being approved by men. So let's briefly consider each of these truths. In self-denying love, we are serving Christ. That's how the apostle puts it there in verse 18. He who serves Christ in these things. Now that truth has been woven throughout this section. We will all uh, stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Who are you to judge another man's servants? All of that has been given in the context. Now again, in saying this, that we deal in self-denying love, Paul is not saying here or elsewhere that we cannot make an accurate assessment of another person's theology or practice in the light of exegesis. It does not mean that we cannot challenge or rebuke or warn or practice church discipline in some cases when necessary. But that's not what's on the docket here. Paul has something else in mind. This is about your brothers and sisters and how you love them in a church where there is a common understanding of the gospel and a common, and a common experience of the gospel. So we're not talking here about heresy. We're not talking about church. We're not talking about um, denials of Christ and justification. We're not talking here about immorality. We're talking about a group of people who all believe the gospel, who have all experienced the grace of God in Christ, and yet have come to some uh, different conclusions about things. That's what you're talking about. 
And the fact that we are to love one another and that to do so requires things like humility of mind or what Paul says in Philippians 2, considering other people more important than ourselves. That's clear not only in the context, but throughout the rest of the scriptures. We are to love one another as he has loved us. We take his lowliness, Philippians 2, and his self-denial to the point of death, even on the death of the cross, not only as a part of the joyous ground of his saving work for us, but also as a pattern of our own love. Philippians 2 not only tells us why we can be saved because he went to the cross, it says, have this mind in you, which was also in him. We're serving him in this. We love because he first loved us, and we love the way that we love because we want to be those who build our lives on his will for us. Because he's not only told us that we're to love, he has told us what love looks like. And we do not want him to say to us at the end of our days, in the, lang in the language of Luke 6, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And you do not do the things that I said. We do what we do because, as has already been articulated, we desire to be doers of the word. This is what love looks like. This is what love demands. It's what it demands of me. And again, there is no truth more often pressed upon us in our conscience in regard to practical duty in the Christian life than that we love one another. And even when that love is difficult, and even when that love is provoked, in fact, the language of love tells us that love is born for adversity, that the dynamics of love are most often seen not in our contented pleasure with one another, because even the Gentiles can love each other in that way. But it is when we are in the midst of difficult saints with differing convictions and idiosyncrasies and sometimes actual sins that can drive us to the point of distraction. To love then and to love as Christ has loved us then is a true sign that we are serving Christ, walking not according to our passions, but with a heart and conscience gripped by divine revelation. You know, in the Great Commission, the church is told to go and make disciples among the nations and to baptize them. And then we are told to teach those new converts everything that Jesus commanded. And if you're going to preach everything that Jesus commanded, a lot of that is going to focus upon the love of the brethren. You're not going to be able to teach the commands of Jesus without spending some great deal of time in the new commandment that he gave to them, that they would love each other even as he loved them. So that when we in conscience and obedience to the word revealed will of Christ die to ourselves, when we deny ourselves for the sake of another, when you hold the reins of your tongue or pull the reins of your passions and actions in order to honor a less informed brother or sister, but nonetheless a brother or sister for whom Christ died, 
you are not only just quote unquote doing the right thing, but you are in fact serving your master. He does these things as serving Christ. Secondly, you are acting in a way that is acceptable to God. Oh, here's Jim becoming Roman Catholic now. It's a, now it's salvation by works. No, it's not what we're talking about. But we do need to know that a child of God can live a life that is pleasing to God. In fact, there are things that are in and of themselves pleasing to the Lord. Children, obey your parents, for this is right. This is well-pleasing to the Lord. You're doing what you're doing something. This is obedient. That's disobedient. This is something God delights in. This is something that God hates. Now here, again, not that that could bring about salvation, but now here we are as a child of God desiring, having a heart to please the Lord that I believe is put into the heart of every child of God by God's grace. I remember years ago, I can't remember, I mean, it was very early on in my Christian life, but th these words were emblazoned on my heart, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 9. Therefore, we make it our aim or our ambition, whether present, that is in this life, or absent, that is with the Lord, but we make it our ambition to be well-pleasing to him. What are you trying to do in your life? I want to please the one who loved me before the foundation of the world. I want to love the one who pursued me by his grace and sent his spirit and gave to me the spirit of adoption. I want to honor him. I want to please him. This term acceptable to God is a term that is used in this beginning section of Romans, Romans 12, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God or in view of the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, or some have your religious service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove, that you may demonstrate, that you might live out what is that good, and here's our word again, acceptable and perfect will of God. Again, the fact that we cannot offer work sufficient for our perfect righteousness or our salvation does not mean that we cannot live in a way that God approves, that God takes pleasure in, that God accepts. Now, child of God, I know, some, I know we have ups and downs. I know we have good weeks and bad weeks, good days and bad days. But let's, let's get to the bottom level and who and what we are. Do you not desire to please and honor and glorify God. Don't you, don't you want that for your life? And don't you think to yourselves, Lord, I'll do anything that you might receive honor and glory. All right, how about deny yourself for somebody else? Nah, I, I don't want to do that. <laughs> Give me something else. Uh, send me to the jungle somewhere. Uh, I'll, I'll live among cannibals. Uh, how about if you uh, don't eat this because it's offending your brothers? No, nah, I don't want to do that. No, you want to you please him? He is pleased when you conscientiously think well of your brother or sister and say no to yourself and no to your appetites in order to please them. God takes pleasure in that. He's honored in that. You're serving Christ in that. He's being glorified in that. If you want to honor and glorify and please the Lord, then guard your heart's affection. Guard and guide and promote those things which would cause you 
not only to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but to also love your neighbor as yourself. Those are not two contradictory things. They're part of the complex of the work of God and placing the law into our minds and writing it on our hearts. And when we are believers, we desire not only to love our neighbor as ourselves, but to love one another as Jesus has loved us. And we all, I trust, I say this often to preachers uh, when I'm in talking to other preachers. Look, we all have a desire to hear, well, good, well done, good and faithful servant. That's not just for ministers of the gospel. That's for all of us. We all want to hear his well done. And if we want to do that, then we must remember the weightier matters of the law. You want his smile and his approval, then love one another with an unfeigned, sincere love toward those for whom Christ died. And then Paul gives this incentive, that in doing this, you will win the approval of men. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Now, this is a fascinating concept to work through in the scriptures because it involves some tension. I watched yesterday the funeral of my friend Randy Pizzino who, who died a couple of weeks ago and they somebody had brought out this was one of Randy's favorite terms and it was also I'd already had this in my notes when I when I uh, when I heard that and I was reminded of a, a one of my teachers in Bible college he used this expression living in the center of biblical tension and I like that term more than I like the term balanced I, I think I think balanced uh, conveys things we don't want it to convey. You know, well, I don't want to love, I mean, I, I got to love God, I got to love my neighbor, uh, and I need to balance the two. No, you don't need to balance the two. But sometimes it may produce in you a tension. And there can be a tension in this regard. So on the one hand, we have what Paul says to the Galatians when he says, am I now striving to please men or win the approval of men? If I were striving to please men, I could not be a bondservant of God. I don't want to be a man pleaser. I want to be a God pleaser. So you cannot please God and men unless there is a sense in which you can't and there's another sense in which you can. Now, first you're asking the question, well, which men? Which men are you being approved by? Is this the approval of the church or the good esteem of the church and the body of Christ like we read of Timothy in Acts chapter 16 when uh, Timothy's introduced, and they said that Timothy was well spoken of by the brethren. Right? They had a good reputation among my brethren. Uh, and it, now there is, as we will see later in this very epistle, a sense in which it is righteous to uh, please others. Look at what's said in, in Romans chapter 15 and verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor. Paul, what are you saying? Let's please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. There's a righteous sense of pleasing others. And so I'm going to put it this way in a way that sounds like double talk, but follow along. To be a man pleaser is compromise. But to deny oneself on behalf of another to please our neighbor is righteous. 
To be a man pleaser is compromise. To please men out of self-denying love is righteous. And there's all the difference in the world between being a man pleaser and one who strives to please his neighbor. You see, one is born out of selfishness. I'm going to I'm going to be a man pleaser so everybody's going to think you know, well of me and I don't ever have to worry about you know, somebody, uh, the, the gospel bringing a sword. But the other is done out of selflessness where you deny yourself conscientiously for the sake of another. What is being said here is that our testimony before others in the church and I believe out of the church matters. So on the one hand, we say, Paul says, it's a little thing for me to be judged by you. I don't care if you judge me. I don't care if you evaluate me. That, there's truth to that. Can't be a slave to the opinions of men. Don't fear men who can only kill the body, but fear him who has the power to destroy both body and soul in hell. I say to you, fear him. But to have a desire to so walk before others, to let our light shine before others, is something that is wholesome and righteous. Paul states in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 about renouncing the hidden things of shame and living so transparently that he says that by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And then again, 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 21, providing honorable things not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of of men. Remember our Lord Jesus said that we are to let our light so shine before men that they will observe our works and glorify our Father in heaven and that if we would love one another we would demonstrate that we are indeed his disciples and if we as a congregation would be united we might demonstrate to a watching world that the Father has sent the Son. And so on the one hand, yes, we are free from the opinions of men, from the slavish fear of men, and we can stand on the truth and say, let the world say what they may. But on the other, as those who bear witness to the world, we show by our love and integrity that we are his disciples. And so those are three conclusions, and now an application. Verse 19, therefore... Let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. Therefore, let us do these things. And what Paul says here in verse 19 is to be a thoughtful, determinative action of God's people living in light of God's mercy and living in the realm of God's kingship. So what is that kingdom of God or that kingship of God? Again, it's a kingship of righteousness. It's a kingship of joy. It's a kingship of peace. And because that's the nature of the kingdom, I should respond to others in the kingdom in that way. It's a kingdom of righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. So how do I know that I have passed from the borderlands of one kingdom into the realm of another? So, again, as I mentioned, I, I was in Brazil for uh, nine, ten days, whatever it was. I'm very conscious when I was there that I'm in a different world. And the places where I, I was and where a little town where I was, it looks different. A few places that maybe look a little bit like certain parts of the U.S. But, uh, but and all anybody had to do was open their mouth 
Or if I saw a sign, I was reminded that this isn't my realm. And when I passed out of Brazil and landed in Atlanta, the first person who talked to me spoke English. And it was like, wow, I'm, I, I'm home. I've passed from one realm into another. How do I know that I passed from the borderland of this world under the sway of the evil one into the realm of God's kingship? Well, ideally here, I ought to be able to behold in the lives of its citizens. I ought to be able to determine from their heavenly ways the precepts of their king and note how different it is from the kingdom of darkness. The kind of pettiness and hardness of heart and selfishness that marks us in our unconverted state ought not to mark our gatherings together in God's house And it's a shame when it does. This is the way it's meant to be. And again, while some will find grounds to fight and ridicule and mock and put down or destroy, others have another agenda. An agenda which requires agency and help from on high. It is, the apostle says, a pursuit. Let us pursue So whatever this is in regard to to peace that is brought out here and to edification, it's not going to happen spontaneously. It's not going to happen by you just, you know, uh, being. It's going to require a calling upon God. It's going to require a mind gripped by the truth of God and proper exegesis in context so that I can, by the help of the Spirit, pursue. Now, you know what it means to pursue. You run after, you chase after. It's a word that can and is translated in some parts of the Bible as persecute. It's the same word that's used in Hebrews chapter 12. This is a text that for years I quoted primarily the second half. I would kind of mumble through the first part and then focus on the second. Let us pursue peace with all men and that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Well, There's two things being said here, both of equal importance. Let us pursue peace and that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's to be done with determination and it's to be done continuously. We never stop pursuing this. As we have need, which is going to be often because we're dwelling, look, (laughs) we know each other. I like being here. I really do. I I like you. It doesn't mean that sometimes I'm not irritating to you or you might not be a little irritating to me. It doesn't mean that it's always easy to get along in every case. And so there needs to be some action, some pursuit, some calling upon God, some help from the Holy Spirit, a reminder of what God has said love is and how it responds so that when I feel my selfishness rise, when my words or heart begin to tear down, I change course. I begin to pursue. When I would belittle my brother or sister, and in doing so, when I would join, as it were, in the course of hell and mocking them or accusing them, I recognize that it is God's will for me to act otherwise. Shall I not consider that I am one upon whom the Lord has shown mercy? Shall I not consider 
Did he preach peace to me when I was far off? Did he not pursue peace with me at great expense to himself upon the cross? Did he not in his own body break down the middle wall of partition that separated literally Jews from Greek, uh, Jews and, and Gentiles? Did not the Spirit of God bestow in salvation, according to Ephesians 4, a bond of peace? And shall I not then endeavor to keep that unity of the Spirit? Then let me pursue in my, in my words, in my thoughts, in my affections, in my attitudes and actions, the things that make for peace. To show my brother or sister, when things begin to get agitated, that this is not a time to be at conflict. But what can I do to heal the breach? But not only peace, but also their edification. This is another aspect of truth woven throughout the epistles to describe how the body of Christ is to live in harmony and thus to promote growth within itself. It's a desire that they be better, that they be helped, that they be made more like their Savior rather than more like me. Paul knew that so much of this would be a matter of the heart and thus of the tongue, and so he commands in Ephesians 4, 29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And in bringing these things together, it's interesting to note Paul's words to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5. This is one of these passages that sometimes is hard, for certain preachers to preach. I think some pastors love to preach this kind of stuff too much. But it is a section of, this, of the scriptures in which Paul is addressing the church and its attitude toward their elders. And in order that the church might do what they ought to do in a way that honors God and obeys the will of Christ, he explains a little bit about what pastors do. And he says, in essence, you really need to understand what their work is so that you can do what you need to do. So they says this, all right, I'm going to deal with the text before verse 11. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you're doing, okay, commends them. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize, and it's translated in some translations as respect those who labor among you, who are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, talking about their elders, and to esteem them very highly in love for the sake of their work. And then he says this, be at peace among yourselves. So I'm going to say this. You want to, you want to show honor to your elders? Be at peace among yourselves. And then he says, now we exhort you, brethren. So sometimes you... You need to do some other things. You need to warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak. And then he says this, but be patient with everybody. Not everybody needs warning. Not everybody right now needs to be upheld. Some people are doing fine. But you got to be patient with everybody. And you got to work for the things that edify the body. Because this is not just about my own self that I come here 
is to build myself up. I have an opportunity as a part of a body to be a means by which others are helped, others are encouraged, others are edified. And I will pursue those things. So we come now to the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper calls us to several things. It calls us to faith, certainly. It calls us to remembrance. It calls us to hope. It calls us to a a peace of heart. It reminds us that Jesus died, that Jesus paid the price. But it also reminds us of our relationships to one another. There's a reason why we do this together and not in isolation or not just saying, oh, we're having the Lord's Supper. Who are my favorite people in the church? Or if I have a, if I have a click or something, I want to make sure I sit with my click so that you know, I can show them I care about them. But we can distribute it among one another. We do it in the body, and it reminds us that our deepest unity is not in our common understanding of things like food and drink, but in our common experience of God's grace and mercy. We don't turn to each other in essence and say, do you agree with me on everything? But we turn to each other and we say, did Jesus die for you as he did for me? Is he your hope as he is my hope? It's in our common experience of God's grace and mercy. Because we are preaching, as we were reminding ourselves earlier today, we are proclaiming the Lord's death. And we're proclaiming it until he comes. It's a death in which he demonstrated his love for us while we were sinners. And while we are still far less than we ought to be. Yes, we are justified sinners. And yet we still fail and fall short. And in this supper, he reminds us, I still did all that is needed for you to have a perfect righteousness before me. I'm still your hope. I am still the grounds of your acceptance. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress. And this is another thing we do. So we proclaim the reality of his death. And again, we we proclaim it to ourselves and we preach it afresh to our brothers and sisters. Some come today having had perhaps a, a, a bad week or a bad month or however long it's been. And you think to yourself sometimes, I, I, I can't come. I have, I have no right to come. I'm, I'm, too, I'm too, too sinful to come. And we say to you, my brother or sister, fly afresh to that fountain open for sin and uncleanness. Those caveats that are given in 1 Corinthians 11 about some warnings are given not so that you won't partake, but so that you'll partake rightly. It's saying, just get it right, and then come. And confess before the Lord. But remind yourself here that the way to God is not in your punishing yourself. It's not in your sitting with guilt for another week or another month or upbraiding yourself or reminding yourself of your sin and failure. The cross is the place where we remind ourselves of the love of God and the perfection of Jesus. That's what we are proclaiming, not our rottenness, but his beauty and his perfection. But we're also preaching to anyone and everyone who has not yet known the depths of that love, that in Jesus Christ there is mercy. And our hope for you is you will find that mercy uh, even uh, as we partake 
today. Well, let's pray and let's ask God's blessing on these things. Our Father in heaven, thank you for these moments in your word, and we pray that you would bless these things to our hearts and souls. We ask your great mercy upon us for Jesus' sake. Amen.